0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. Gen Con. And
1: GenCon. Gen Con. Con.
0: Roar. What are you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plane Gea 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but
1: dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters... Factions, I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380 page plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay. Oh wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur! Plain Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e! It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a Saurian,
0: with ancestral
1: memories! Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Rawr. Indeed, rawr. rawr! Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Plain Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Plangea. Are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone.
0: Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors.
1: The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games.
0: For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com/slash. Plain Gia. So, Ken, for the first time in a long time, we are back after a Gen Con, and uh, both of us were there. I was not there in 2022, which was the sort of partial, still mathed Gen Con. I had an unfortunate family situation that prevented me from going. So this is my first time back. And it felt, I think, to a lot of the convention goers on the floor, whether they're exhibitors or attendees, that things were as back to normal as they're ever going to be now that we have endemic rather than pandemic COVID. And there was, a, I think, an overall sense of jubilation to be back together, not the whole community. There are a lot of people who are still away. We had three members of our crew away for non-COVID reasons, but I think the overall vibe was one of uh, of great excitement, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes, as the great Irish poet Finn Lizzie once said, guess who just got back today? And that, I think, was the vibe. It was very celebratory. People certainly showed it in their spending. Everyone that we talked to reported record-breaking Thursdays and then very strong showings for the rest of the convention. We certainly felt that at Pelgrane, there just seemed to be an urge to return to Gen Con and make Gen Con what it once was all over again, except this time, you know, louder. And, uh, it was, it was, it was a big, you know, the sort of joint celebratory energy that Gen Con has had in the past, did not so much have last year, certainly didn't have in the off year in 2021 or the video year in 2020, I think that uh, this definitely was the return to form and return to greatness for Gen Con to, you know, the vast majority of the 85,000 odd people that uh, showed up.
0: I had forgotten how much I missed, or I guess wasn't aware of how much this period has cost me in terms of not being able to talk to people who actually read and more importantly, play the things that I work on. And that level of connection, I realize now how important and vital it is to my ability to get up and do something and work every day, knowing that there are people actually playing these things and using them and feeling rewarded by them. Creative work in our industry is not, it's collaborative, but it's collaborative in sort of a siloed fashion. Being a a writer, uh, I'm not making an original observation when I say that uh, writing is uh, sort of a, a lonely solo experience most of the time. And especially in gaming, you don't, it's not like a, a playwright can go to the theater and hear where the laughs land or the sniffles occur when they've written something. A filmmaker can, or an actor can go to the movie that they made and sense the audience reaction to it. But those of us who who toil in the word minds really need response from people. So to hear, you know, from multiple folks who are running a Dreamhounds of Paris game which you know that's a deep cut and to know that that has reached into their lives and they want to come over and uh, tell me about it it's been sort of a vital circuit in just the everyday work of creativity that i have to store up after an event like this and sort of keep it inside me and use it as fuel to to keep me going every day when i get up to work and in gen con is really the premier event for that because it's the, the largest number of people and, you know, other shows with a more relaxed vibe are great. And, you know, it was delightful to go to Dragon Meat. That was my first convention of any kind uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. But there's there's nothing like Gen Con and the effusion of the people who are willing to come up to the table and are gracious enough to tell me about the effect of what I've done on on them is is really the the vital fuel that boy, have I ever been missing?
1: You crave the love of Americans, Robin, and I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> we're not uh, particularly well paid by successful name above the title writer standards, and getting that degree of fan response, that degree of of love and knowledge that we have made other people's lives concretely better through our work is is a big part of that pay. And, uh, you add that in and I think, you know, the pay begins to equalize a little bit and going without it is very hard and it is very difficult to say, why am I doing this every year on year? If I'm not actually, you know, seeing people eyes light up when they talk about some property that you worked on either, you know, last year or 15 years ago or whatever it happens to be, it's just really great. Um, and then it obviously means a great deal to those fans to get to say that and that's also its own kind of special and its own kind of delightful that they're enjoying that sort of moment of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's it, it maybe not catharsis, but that moment of getting their joy out where someone who is the recipient of it can feel it is super nice. And it, you know, I'm sure it happens to baseball players all the time, but people boo them and throw beers at them too. So it's nice that our fans take the time to come up and, and say how, how nice they thought uh, Dream Hounds of Paris was, or that they're running you know, fall of Delta green and that such and such bizarre and horrible thing happened because the players are idiots. It's just a joy
0: to get to see that. We had some new stuff at the booth and a lot of it concerned my interest. Yes. It's very polite of you to say we. So, well, we, we as in Pelgrim. Yes.
1: And you as in Robin D. Law's beloved author and begetter of these products.
0: Right. And many of them have been in the pipeline for a long time and have finally escaped the pipeline kicking and screaming uh, after being made perfect and ready to go. So even Death Can Die, which is the adventure anthology for Cthulhu Confidential, was finally there on the uh, counter in its nice big fat uh, format. It's uh, three full adventures for each of the three characters that appear in Cthulhu Confidential. So there's three featuring my LA hardboiled detective and also uh, three featuring by Chris Bybee, featuring his war veteran in post-war Washington, D.C. character, and three starring uh, Ruth Tillman's uh, Intrepid Journalist, and uh, of course those are also those are by Ruth. Uh, so it was exciting to see that, and uh, people were uh, glad to have more scenarios for that because it's a, a game that really depends on having a solid bedrock uh, adventure that you can uh, run, so it's great to have those. Uh, finally, out. that's been a, a long time in development. And then there were a bunch of New Yellow King products: Black Star Magic, which is, as I bet you can guess from the title, the magic system for uh, the Yellow King. And uh, I wrote the magic rules. And then Sarah saltiel and Gareth Hanrahan and Ruth Tillman I wrote an adventure to go with each of the four sequences, because the magic has a different flavor, suiting each of the realities and Periods. The cool thing about the rules that I'm very proud of is that those of you who know the Elo King role playing game are familiar with shock cards. When you suffer a bit of uh, emotional or uh, mental uh, damage, instead of just losing points, you get a shock card. This is a card that, if you get too many of them, your character is taken out of play. They're they're mentally or emotionally unable to continue. And the way that uh, spells work in Black Star Magic is that every spell has an effect that you can perform in certain circumstances. And it's a shock card. So because all magic derives from Carcosa, it's really bad. It's a terrible place. There isn't any good magic, just this weird reality bending magic. And whenever you use it, guess what you're doing? You are bending reality. So you have this spell fizzing in your head. It has some sort of terrible effect on you to have it or just creates the risk of going beyond the pale and not being able to get back and so they're easy to discard you can discard them anytime but if you discard them you can't uh, do the spell so that's i think a really cool mechanical thing that people will dig and then finally there's the best area uh, the legions of carcosa book where a a sterling array of uh, writers have contributed creatures for uh, all four of the uh, sequences and then finally uh, i was very happy to see that people were picking up fifth imperative which is the Second book in my series of Yellow King novels featuring the technician, who is a very much wants to be a former technician of the government lethal chambers. And he's this has led him to be sort of drawn uh, very reluctantly into politics. But it turns out there's, there's still weird uh, problems that he and his uh, former ex insurgents need to be drawn into. In this one, uh, there's an assassination attempt where the bullet does something kind of strange that makes him suspicious and uh him on his investigation. And the reason for doing novels in the aftermath setting is it's the one that doesn't really have other media analogs that you right. look at. And so I think people need a bit more of an example of what a typical feel of an adventure in aftermath is. And I'm uh, hoping that uh, enough people will pick it up and enjoy it. that I'll get to do more of them.
1: Yeah. One of the fun things about legions of Carcosa was seeing Young John Harness, a game designer and part of the core Pelgrane Booth crew, get to see his first ever print book with his name on it. He's been mostly a designer in the itch space, so it's lots of PDFs, and uh, even almost as uh, much an impresario of other people's games through running various game jams. So uh, getting to see a little trad joy light his uh, Arterno indie lyric heart was pretty great, too. It was a wonderful moment. At the booth.
0: And I should mention the other uh, writers of the book, even though I didn't get to see them lovingly uh, touch it: Kira Magran Sarah Saltiel, and Monica Valentinelli. And on that note, I think it's just about time to head off for a little break, and then we'll be back to talk more Gen Con.
1: After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form.
0: Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Byvey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money.
1: Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington.
0: And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blue. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York
1: investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling Fog.
0: Goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Astoria and finds the creepy
1: and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in Boundary Waters.
0: And my L.A. hardboiled detective, Dex Raymond, looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance, leading to the house up in the hills.
1: Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in
0: High Voltage Kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. And we're back, and I guess the next thing uh, that we usually, as I recall, (laughs) before we were so rudely interrupted by a global pandemic, uh, we used to spend probably our second segment of each Gen Con Review talking about uh, the big award ceremonies. Uh, There are others but the two that I am most focused on are the Diana Jones Awards and the reason as an industry person that I pay attention to that is that they start the event for us makers of games and we all it's a big reunion where people get together at a bar to see the awards uh, given out and uh, this year it was also kind of the the theme of strong emotion uh-huh. and it, it, and like I don't know I I thought that we got into a thing that was all about flanking bonuses to so like not have to have feelings mm-hmm. to, to sublimate them but there are a lot of feelings partly because the list of people that we remember who have passed over the last year that Matt Formic uh, reads out as part of his MC duties is now getting getting long, and it's it's kind of tough, Ken.
1: And it's uh, more than just long. It is also beginning to touch people that you and I considered our peers, our equals, our, you know, part of our generation. Our contemporaries. That it's not just legendary figures like Dave Arneson or Greg Stafford, who's loss, Of course, we felt every bit as keenly, but to have the name, in, the names include Darren Watts, who has been, you know, basically as close a friend as I've had in this business. It hits different. As much as I miss Greg, I cannot say that my friendship with Greg, much as it would have been wonderful, was on the same level as my friendship and association with Darren. And I feel like that's not going to get less. It's not, we're not suddenly all going to be immortal after that list teaches the error of dying. So it it does add a, a really... You know, um, not even poignant—a um, deeply a mournful moment at the beginning of the celebration, which is certainly a roller coaster to ride uh, when you're going from there to celebrating these new, brand new, next generation emerging designers, and then uh, giving out the big award. It's it's quite the tone shift, and I don't know that it works as a movie, Robin.
0: Right, uh, and one thing that has changed since the last time I was at the Dinah Jones Award is I used to kind of joke and wink about the fact that. Uh, Who knows who's on the shadowy cabal? And now I'm actually not on the shadowy cabal anymore. I stepped away in order to make room for a new generation and people who actually had the necessary time to devote to it. But in that meantime, uh, the Dinah Jones Awards have grown up from an in-joke slash tribute to now it's an actual registered charity Mm -hmm. that does a big and important thing. And uh, I would like uh, you to tell people about that big and important thing.
1: Yeah, the big important thing that uh, you're referencing is the emerging designer program where the committee, or I I assume a subcommittee of the committee first, takes a bunch of designers. Uh, The rule is that they have to have published their first work, I think, in the last three years so that we're not giving people who've been in the industry long enough to know better an award and uh, sort of sorts through them for the most interesting You know, uh, it's not quite finding potential because there is a past record, but sort of who do we want to spotlight as uh, new to this industry that is maybe going to make it a lot better, a lot sooner than we think. I uh, came up with the idea of that program. I pushed for the program. I, you know, got it past uh, the, the decision makers at Gen Con. And then turned it over because suddenly it was going to involve a lot of hard work to Camden Wright, who has done an amazing job shepherding the actual program forward. But the designers get a trip to Gen Con, they get a hotel room, they get time on the floor, they get to network with people. There's a whole
0: uh, spectrum of things that they can do. And and that's really important to support the careers of new people. And especially if the goal is to bring in people from all sorts of different backgrounds and perspectives Back in the day, Ken, when you and I started going to Gen Con and were trying to you know, break in and work out a profile and get uh, enough work to do this for a living, it was much cheaper than it is now.
1: Yes, it was. it was. It was a $20 train ticket, and Chaosium paid everything else for me to go to Gen Con. It was quite the deal. Right.
0: And even if you were paying for a hotel room in the 90s, you were paying a lot less. And if you were buying food in the late 90s, you were buying a lot less. And people who are these days, especially from you know new communities or communities that want to draw and you can't assume that they have a huge investment of bucks to lay down for the speculative possibility of running right. into somebody at a show who you're going to bond yeah. with, who's going to work with you and be your collaborator over a period of many years. Well, that's how we did it largely, mm-hmm. and so it's necessary to find somebody to lay out the cash for that, and so the. Dinah Jones uh, solicits donations. Uh, Gen Con helps out as well. But the Bundle of Holding, uh, run by Alan Varney, has really, really stepped forward with a very generous donation that makes that possible. And because it's harder to sustain a a career now. And, you know, the new young freelancers who I want to talk to and introduce to people they don't necessarily go to Gen Con every year because it's too pricey. It is
1: pricey. It's, I mean, it's at minimum a couple of thousand dollars and that's if you drive and if you fly, call it 3000 to do Gen Con. That's a lot of money out of someone's paycheck, especially if they're gambling a stamp that someone has noticed their wild indie thing that was off in a corner and did not get turned into a, you know, the shadow run book or whatever. It's harder, I think to do the the thing that you and I did, because also there were fewer places to have to publish to get noticed. We could take contract work for about a dozen companies and be relatively sure that someone would see it. Whereas nowadays, good luck. It's um, a whole different uh, ecosystem. So with that in mind, let's give further boost to the emerging designers of 2023, Anthony Joyce Rivera, Aaron Roberts, kayla dice and sen hhs all of them with uh, some games under their belt and some pretty interesting perspectives on what they want to do going forward and i think that this will not be the last time you hear their names i don't i want to pick favorites but i know one or two of them
0: that you're really i promise you're gonna hear their names and they all got up and spoke, and i found that As an old softy, extremely uh,
1: moving as well. It was very touching and very, very nice to see
0: uh, the kids today and know that they were all right. And Ken, I I guess we should, if we're going to talk about the Diana Jones Award. The actual award. I guess there's also a Diana Jones Award that goes to something, wasn't it? As usual, an incredible eclectic mix of different nominees. And this time around, I I always uh, root. Uh, for this outcome in particular it went to a game mm.
1: yeah it went to uh, coyote and crow by connor alexander uh, this is a role-playing game set in an alternate north america where it's all native americans and there's no white folks coming over the ocean to uh, wreck everything with their cities and their wi-fi so, so it's sort of you know fantasy from that branch point and that's not a thing that you see an awful lot of you don't even see it in science fiction novels, although a couple of times I think you do. But it's it's a new thing in gaming, and Connor Alexander basically, you know, said this ought to happen, went on Kickstarter. Lots of other people said it ought to happen. It was a very successful Kickstarter. And then the game has won the Diana Jones Award. So if you're looking for a sweetheart arc for the movie, I think uh, Coyote and Crows got it. And uh, it was nice to see Ajit George, uh, who won it last time, pass it on to the next winner, who I think was not there, actually. So, Ajit Jordi passed it on to himself, and uh, he got to give the speech he was got to give last time. It, it was Rob Davio who, who uh,
0: gave the acceptance speech for for uh, Connor. Now, we come to another award show, which we were somewhat distracted at, Ken, because we were hosting the end. Yes. You can dial it up on YouTube to see it, although the audience is not mic'd, so you cannot tell which of our jokes landed.
1: Yeah, you can't tell... When the uproarious laughter hit.
0: Yeah. You can decide for yourself how well we did it. It's something of a, a challenge to just sort of jump in without a, it's a big, it's a big award show. It, it's getting bigger. It was the first time they even had to pay attention to the fact that, that the Ennies is a ticketed event. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what impact that had, but it did technically sell out and it's. Uh, coming to be a, a big award show but you still like so many things in the hobby gaming industry you just jump in and and do it and hope that it, yep. <laughs> it all works out so I guess the the big winners the avatar game from uh, magpie did extremely well and uh, and got the uh, love that I was not surprised to see and then free league uh, once again continued their streak and uh, showed a, a huge Uh, dominance of that category which speaks to the quality of their material and the uh, love that their uh, large and enthusiastic community has for it
1: yeah it was um uh free league now is sort of you know where monty cook was and paizo was before them they're very much the 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 focus of the eye of Sauron. if Sauron was an eye of love and excitement and they keep producing really good games so they, they may reign for a bit and they cleverly combine just cracking good graphic design with licensed nerd properties that everyone loves, which is a, a good mix. If you can get it, we were personally, I think very chuffed and you can see it on the uh, stream that our own uh, stable mates at Pellegrin won three Ennies for swords of the serpentine. They won a silver for best cover. So congratulations to Jerome uh, Wiganin They won a silver for best setting and a gold for best writing. And that's the real come from behind underdog award in in a year when obviously there was some super stiff competition and for a game that was a smaller game from a smaller company to win that that's real love and real appreciation for kevin cope and emily dresner the authors of that wonderful game
0: so i don't know what other than the fact that people love those games that tells us about the general state of the industry but we're going to talk about the state of the industry after this exciting commercial message The best of Ask is
1: now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013.
0: That's spelled F-E-N-I-X.
1: Can now be grabbed in special English editions.
0: Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other
1: recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose your adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not
1: English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix...
0: And the new Sagebrush and Six-Guns role-playing game, Western! How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of AskFegeln on drive DriveThru. Keep this podcast's foam floor tiles bouncy by joining such hard-working Patreon backers as... Chris Doyle! Yadge from Edinburgh! Drew Eichols! Daniel Martin And John
0: W.S. Marvin. So we're back, Ken. And another thing that it turns out that I uh, very much missed and needed to be in touch with is a scuttlebutt from my colleagues to see how the business side of tabletop is going and where uh, trends are moving. And it made me reflect on just we haven't had just one wave of change in the past say, decade or so. But we've had a whole bunch of them, and things are continuing to really change at a rapid pace. But the overall arc is still towards growth. Things are getting bigger and bigger. When last we joined our intrepid industry, there was a initial spike caused by the pandemic when people uh, wanted books to read and needed to shift their gaming online, which meant Possibly, in some cases, starting new groups, starting new games. They needed uh, new material for that. And that kept a lot of very worried hobby game publishers alive. The other half of that, as we mentioned before in the show, though, is that after that, inevitable downturn. Mm-hmm. Because as it became uh, safer to go out into the world and do things, people either went out and did those things. I don't understand that. Or they realized just how much stuff they'd acquired and that they'd only read half of it. They continued to read the rest of it, so there was a bit of a a dip in sales. But here we saw the the bounce from that and that there was clearly a lot of pent-up demand for things. You could see that at the heavy sales at the booth and the strong sales for uh, different core books and people still coming and picking up the new things for the games they're into or still looking for games to be into... So there, there's another factor that's sort of creating a counter movement to tabletop role playing, which is trading card games, customizable card deck games, which are suddenly experiencing a huge resurgence. And uh, part of the resurgence of that, Ken, it, there's a bit of crime blotter activity oh, yeah. on, on the floor. It was
1: wonderful. Um, maybe not wonderful. I'm sure that it's not <laughs> funny to the people who were robbed, but it was funny. A couple of guys swanned up looking like Gen Con attendees. In fact... Uh, my friend Jess said that one of them looked very much like her husband. So I'm glad to see that the tradition of game designer, uh, wives informing on their game designer husbands is strong, but they walked off with two pallets of magic cards valued at $27,000. So first of all, that's, uh, quite the, quite the move. And I'm always uh, remembering the, you know, Ocean's 11 bit about the ink and death mask. Well, it's good. There's money in them. If you can move them, well, you can move magic cards. That's not the problem, uh, but. Imagine sentencing yourself to going on eBay for twenty-seven thousand magic cards, or however many magic cards that is, but only twenty-seven grand. I mean, that's at some point you're making minimum wage again, and you're also wanted for grand larceny. So maybe, maybe you aim higher. I'd say yeah, anonymous fees. do
0: crime. Yeah. I think that's the overall <laughs> message we want to get at here. But it speaks to the the fact that in cities all over the world, that uh, trading card games are hot again, and there's a new wave of uh, retail operations opening up and like the ones in the 90s, it's a matter of some concern to uh, people who are into tabletop role-playing because those stores may be grudgingly stock, uh, you know, an end cap of Dungeons and Dragons and they have some polyhedrals, but the business model is about having people in the store and buying packs in order to play with them in the store or paying a tournament fee. And that's not something that requires them to you know, stock a full uh, line of tabletop games. And you could also see the excitement about other new games on the floor. Lorcana from Disney was the one that everybody was rushing into the hall to get packs for. In fact, speculation on those cards and decks was occurring during the show. So people who got in the line would they turn around and sell them and sell them on eBay. So we're in for another wave of speculation, which means that, and at the same time, distribution for tabletop in North America is at a low point, and people are starting to talk and work out ways to get around that because right now can retail is really slipping away as a way of getting tabletop role-playing games into people's hands.
1: Yeah, the um, ongoing degringolade of the distribution network is not helping. The you know retailers that are really good and work you know three times as hard as they should have to can keep things in stock and, and do well, but by and large, the days of being able to run a game store without personally salvaging the role-playing game division every couple of years are gone. You know, the rise of streaming, the rise of uh, the rise of actual play uh, videos, all of that has created a secondary market. Uh, in an ideal world, those people will go to the uh, website of the game company. Usually they go to Amazon, but, you know, years ago, probably more than a decade ago, Mike Merles told me that the streaming to Amazon funnel for game buying was as big as the nerd thing to comic book store to game buying funnel that you and I grew up in. And so it can't have gone down as a percentage and has certainly gone up. You know, I I guess we can't really allude to some of the news that we heard that's germane to distribution and retail, but I feel like the bigger players in this business, those that are thinking about, you know, 10 years down the road, are not going to let every retail game store go under without a fight to stock their stuff there one last time, and whatever that takes is, I think, what they're about to have to do, because at this point, sending something to distribution, unless you're very lucky or very much the it thing of the moment, is like sending it to a, a you know, an undiscovered board from which no traveler returns.
0: Right. It's not as dire as you point out as it was during the original wave of. Uh, card games because because the thing that retail does when it's working is that it hand sells games to people, just as uh, people at Gen Con do at their booths. That's the other weeks of the year. That's the retailer explaining how this and that game works and, and uh, hopefully having a relationship with you so they know your tastes and know a new thing to suggest to you. And the first wave of card games just it killed off some stores, first of all, because they Overbought and then went under, or it just caused them to jettison their role playing in favor of a new release model that churned really hard the cards. And so that really hurt the tabletop role playing games. And it was really a third edition and the energy created by the open gaming license that revitalized what was then a really suffering market. And here, as you say, streaming exists to kind of be that hand selling or tiktoks or or what have you but they're not primarily mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to describe the selling points of the games that they're running and often you know the connection between the, the game and the company and the designer of the game and its features and the fact that you too might want to play that thing sometimes they're present but sometimes not so much and so uh But fortunately, as you say, there's enough people who look at them and go, I want to do that as opposed to, I just want to watch someone else do that. And they can go to Amazon. And that suggests that if you are a tabletop game publisher, that you more than ever need to be on Amazon and paying attention to it and optimizing your Amazon presence. And a lot of publishers find that daunting for one thing. A lot of the sales go to resellers or they go to Amazon and they, you know, they undercut on price. Your initial instinct is to say, well, I would like to drive them to my store Mm -hmm. to get full price. And if you're listening and, you know, and it's all the same to you, you are doing much, much more financially to support your beloved game company by buying direct from them. But if the new customers are going from streaming to Amazon to get your stuff, Maybe you'll round them up later, mm-hmm. for example, when they come to your Discord, but that's how you acquire new gamers these days, new customers. And that's a, uh, I mean, Amazon isn't new, but the absence of retail and the power of the, the streaming to Amazon pipeline or something, I think people really need to, to reckon with.
1: And and while we're talking directly to the listener, if you do live in an area with a good role playing game store, do everything in your power to keep it in existence, you know, buy whatever games you're looking for there and, you know, buy your friends gift certificates from that game store for Christmas. Uh, just these places are one bad month of cash flow or Uh, As it happens, you know, one lockdown away from going away forever. Uh, So think of them as endangered uh, charismatic macro fauna and work to make their environment better is, I guess, my advice, because it's a different universe than it was, as you say, even during the last uh, collapse in the early 2000s. And so we are seeing a uh, or late 90s and early 2000s. And so we are seeing a another tectonic shift. Nothing ever stays the same. I suppose we wouldn't want it to, although rubs chin thoughtfully. And it's important if you're a game company to have that discord, as Robin says, to have a place for new uh, users to uh, find you and to congregate and talk amongst themselves and post memes or do whatever the kids love. And, uh, if you're, you know, thinking that. This is just a blip, but old times are going to come back and save us. In the immortal words of, uh, Jill Lucas of FASA, get in your time machine, go back to 1982 and sell your games there. <laughs> Which was, I, I still remember the sort of disdain that she had for people who would not catch up to the, at that time, brand new world. I think of, um, uh, PDFs. Uh, it was pretty
0: exciting. So, and, and one way to both support your beloved, actually good, full stocking retail operation and the publisher that you love is to volunteer to run something there, run demos, run a campaign of your game if they have a play space. And that's uh, the way to sort of square that circle and help support the infrastructure of uh, not just the hobby that brings you the, the top tier single most famous thing, but the special cool things that you love. One other weird detail of the growth of the trading card market again. Well, first of all, I guess I have to say it was there as a presence. It was a fact. It was obvious. But it wasn't like the industry being hit by a thunderbolt the way that it was during the first years of Magic and all of the imitators and and other exciting good trading card games that came along with it. But it it wasn't like everyone was suddenly being shaken by a hammer. You kind of knew in the background that this was a big category again, but the really weird thing was hanging out with collectors, and you can learn a lot about it, the history of mm-hmm. <laughs> of the medium and uh, what uh, people are interested in now. Because it turns out that some of those early card games, the boosters and decks from the less famous ones, are suddenly going for big prices. For example, on the edge, you can you can pay forty bucks for a, a booster on the edge, but those are still in the Atlas warehouse. Yes. <laughs> They still have some that they can sell you at retail or perhaps with an exciting bargain. So- if you show up with a pickup truck and a
1: $10 bill, who knows how many On the Edge cards you can drive away with. Yeah, not to blow up anyone's cunning scheme, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> like they used to say on uh, television, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. And I feel like, you know, something like On the Edge, which had not a ton of cultural footprint in the industry... I could see someone believing that it's this rare obscurity that uh, there isn't a lot of without stopping to think, why would it be a rare obscurity? Because it didn't sell, but that means there's a lot of unprinted, oh, I see what's going on. So, caveat emptor, card people.
0: So, I think I have some more thoughts arising from hanging around with collectors, but we'll get to them after this exciting commercial message.
1: In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy.
0: The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors.
1: They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden.
0: Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... <laughs> In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original
1: 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design.
0: Featuring top-secret, eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really
1: spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always
0: order from. That's Delta Green the Conspiracy from Arc Dream Publishing. So we're back and you can also apparently see in the world of collecting how big the tabletop role playing has uh, gotten because the original pioneers of collecting did so on relatively modest budgets and through dogged efforts put together collections and uh, those who became grown-ups got more money to devote to it but prices are really going up because apparently there's some people with some serious silicon valley money leaning in and so if you if you go way back just like the bible
1: some, warned us about
0: making nerds rich <laughs> Well, I I remember, speaking of looking back on on Gen Con's past, I remember when I could tell that nerds were rich. Yeah. Because it used to be when we first started. Thursday now is, I think, the biggest day for most people who have an established base, because that's when the keeners come and pick up all of the stuff that they know they can't find in their local retail store, see previous segment, and they grab it up because they know it might sell out. In the olden days, Saturday used to be the biggest day, and it probably still is for the very biggest companies just because they have steady sales the whole time, and Saturday is the day when the most people are. But anybody who's got like a regular mid-tier following may well see that, uh, that Thursday is the is the big day. Well, it used to be Thursday was not dead. You would get a lot of activity, but that activity was people coming up to your booth, carefully looking at all of the items on the table. they get out their little spiral bound notebooks and their little golf pencils, because this is before Palm Pilots, (laughs) let alone phones where you photograph all the things that you think you might like. And they would very carefully write down all of the things that they might just buy on Sunday. And the reason they wouldn't buy them until Sunday is they had to decide how many hot dogs not to buy with their limited funds in order to Afford. afford everything they really wanted. And then the Silicon Valley revolution happened and nerds had money and their early personal digital assistants, their, their Palm Pilots and their Newtons and their Blackberries were suddenly used not to budget carefully the number of, uh, the competition between hot dogs and, uh, books, but just to make sure that they got everything they wanted. And that's, uh, was a big uh, shift. And now there's been yet another shift. And, and Ken, we discovered that. The collector's market is now sufficiently hot that things are being counterfeited with 3D printing in China.
1: Yeah, the um, and this is for, apparently, and this is as new and bizarre to me as it is to anyone, TSR used to give out commemorative belt buckles to much beloved fans and company members, I guess.
0: Yeah, it was done through the RPGA, but if you were like a top designer, you got an extra fancy uh, enamel belt buckle.
1: Yeah. And so, these belt buckles have become, quite naturally, uh, big collector's items, and they go on eBay for a big amount of money, and what happens is you run a 3D maker shop in China somewhere, you see, oh, this thing is selling for, you know, $10,000 in America, I can build that in 3D printing, I can fake it with some enamel, and now I can sell this on eBay, same as uh, a prisoner actually has it. And if you are... Uh And I almost can't believe I'm saying this, except that I drank with the same people you drank with, so I can completely believe that I'm saying this. If you are a proper student of RPGA enamel belt buckles, you can easily tell the forgeries a sentence that I could have lived my life without ever hearing <laughs> or saying.
0: Yes, we're now big enough to have forgery. Mm. Oh boy, forgery and theft from the floor is back. Yep, uh, pretty terrific. So
1: that's, you know, first of all, it's a story hook and a half, but also it's an indication that... We are now getting to the stage where, you know, third-party paraphernalia. uh, We tried, I think, each of us a couple of times to get a better answer for what was the big seller at the auction for the collectors, and it turns out it was one of three copies of the TSR annual report that they filed with the SEC. And neither of us, I think, could explain why anyone would want that, even
0: Bill Meinhart. The explanation is it's associated with TSR and there's 3 of them yeah
1: and there's 3 of them obviously think about it so the uh you know the notion that this uh, tiresome financial filing is the number one item to be sold is uh, i I don't know if it's a sign that the a collecting hobby is you know out of actual things to buy or if it's that the interest in TSR is now metastasized another level, and so pretty soon it's going to be you know um uh, Dixie cups from a business meeting in 1982 that are going to go up, or you know whatever. It's uh, it's just bizarre. I mean, ah, I understand being a, a bibliophile collecting game books. I don't do it myself, but I get it. And then collecting you know documents about the production of game books, original drafts. I can see it, but business you know annual reports or as i said at the time tsr's early ventures into fiction are i don't i don't i don't get it robin we're we're beyond me as we so often are nowadays well it's
0: it's an art form with a history right it's basically that's you know the equivalent of you know getting some cheap music that louis armstrong wrote on i don't think it's the equivalent but i don't (laughs) i don't have the money for the first one or the inclination for the second one but as a barometer of you know for a long time, we've always kind of wondered, is this going to keep going? Because there are, you know, big hobbies that just kind of disappear or lose their salience and there are art forms that kind of go away. But I think it's pretty clear now that this is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And the, the fact that there's this odd corner where people spend money to accumulate the history of the form. I mean, eventually, right? That some of that stuff is going to end up in the museum of role playing,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I assume it's, but I, I always just assume it's going to, it, it might have been a file cabinet somewhere and only John Peterson and Ben Riggs will want to look at it. Not that uh, someone would pay actual grown up people money for it. That's the part that I have trouble with. I don't, I don't, I totally understand why John Peterson wants to look at it, but I, even John Peterson, who was there, did not want to spend that kind of money on it.
0: Well, I, I don't know that when there is a role playing museum that the TSR annual report will be like, on display and loose No, that's
1: my point. It'll be in a file yeah, folder somewhere way in the back. back. But
0: but there is scholarship around this stuff and people who are going to like you know, you've you've mentioned the current scholars, but that's the demand for that is, is just gonna keep growing, just as, you know, there's been huge scholarship between early jazz or the early movies or anything. So that's you know, that's like the equivalent of, you know, finding, you know, old Vitaphone catalogs or somebody who's gonna really want to see that stuff. Um, so before we get to food, which as always, we try to mention food, but it winds up being a short segment for moments. We'll get into other memorable bits of the vibe or intelligence you gleaned uh, this time at the the relatively few moments when we weren't hanging out together.
1: Um, well, I mean, one thing for me that was unusual is that I deliberately went out on Thursday like a keener to buy uh, board games. Because I have neighbors who are suddenly interested in war games, and so I'm trying to find introductory stuff for them. Picked up a copy of 1775 at the Academy Games place and was told that they did not have a copy of the Global War expansion for Quartermaster General at the Ares Games booth. But when you're going out amongst the board game people, Robin, you notice that there is a whole lobe of our hobby that you and I don't really... Deal with that much. I mean, every now and again we see Rob Davio and or Eric Lang, and we you know pay the obeisance. But I
0: occasionally pass a meeple on the street, and we, we
1: nod exactly, no not one another, knowingly another. as no it one. were. But board games are sort of a secondary lobe of our right. hobby, and. Uh, there was a board game glut a while back. I
0: know that from
1: having talked to retailers. Right. But
0: and, and you don't get a glut unless you originally have a, an explosion of demand. Right.
1: And I feel like we may be, you know, end glut, post glut, late glut. But what we are having is a lot of board games being sold. Um, I saw tons and tons and tons of people carrying them. When I was out amongst them, there was... And there were, there were lines for some of them. There were people coming up. People knew what they wanted. And it looked like the board game segment is writing the same sort of creative high to an extent that the role playing game segment is that they've, in this case, they're uh, lowering the barrier to entry is cheap, not to say dictatorially exploitative printing in China, but that did lower the barrier to a lot of people for board game designs. And I am seeing a lot of board games and a lot of board game consciousness bubbling up in the in the attendees as a whole that
0: and, and you just expect to see that is that people overbuy mm-hmm. on board games and then finally play them all then they go out and buy more board games yeah yeah it's it's a
1: self-sustaining hobby in a way and it's i think it's harder to buy a board game for closet drama i mean god knows i've done it with war games but it's i think harder to do with a more conventional board game so if people are buying them eventually they're probably going to get played and I think that that end of the hobby, that network, and I bet that, you know, board game geek, by having that universal repository of knowledge has actually really helped uh, drive this new renaissance. That if I'm, I know that when I was curious about board games for my neighbor, I could go there and I could pretty much find what I wanted. And uh, that was a resource that was not ex- in existence 15 years ago. So I'm, I'm just glad to see it continue. And it's nice to know that that segment of our hobby is still, Uh, bouncing along.
0: I guess the other state of the industry thing that uh, I heard a bunch was people reevaluating crowdfunding and Kickstarters. Yeah, That that has ruled the roost for so long, and there's still some people that are having a lot of success with it. But for uh, other companies, the unforgiving math of that cycle is beginning to catch up with them. And the question of how you recapture the early excitement of the first wave of Kickstarters, where there was a lot of hunger to discover things, and you could sort of create a viral hit. Just the changing nature of social media, I think, is part of that. And so, people are beginning to really reevaluate Kickstarters and uh, see the risks of doing a Kickstarter more than ever, and also the the effect that it has on the production for the rest of the company. So, I heard a bunch of different people looking with a sort of a more gimlet eye at Kickstarters, which brings to mind Ken Pelgrane Press, one of our beloved sponsors would jump out of the speakers and uh, clobber me if I didn't have you repeat Mm -hmm. (laughs) the big Kickstarter announcement concerning Pelgrine Press, uh, which is going to very carefully release a very exciting thing with your name on it, right? Yes.
1: Yes, they are. And it will be Trail of Cthulhu 2nd Edition. This is uh, a number of cosmetic changes, mostly bringing it up to speed. This has been the flagship gumshoe line for since 2008. We have done a lot of gumshoe games since then, the technology of Presenting Gumshoe has gotten a little stronger. One of the big changes will be replacing the introductory adventure with an actually introductory adventure instead of, uh, as I characterize it, a cruel satire of someone's idea of a Ken Hyde
0: adventure. (laughs) Not so much an ocean of clues as a Sargasso. Right.
1: It is a lovely and wonderful adventure, but it is in no wise introductory, and I should have been hit very hard with uh, something to make me stop doing that. But uh, that'll be available as a PDF uh, later on or eventually maybe collected in the collection, but we will have a proper introductory adventure, and to make sure that it's proper, Gareth Hanrahan, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, beloved Pellegrinista, and my better half in so many ways, will be writing it, as he will be overseeing the upgrade, and a lot of it will be incorporating bits and bobs of gumshoe rules into it. We're going to incorporate the Rough Magic's magic system in, sort of maybe try and do a little more uh, hideous creatures style approach with the monsters, so that you're not penned in without obviating that book just giving people a little more freedom to change up the monsters if they want so basically just trying to do trail of cthulhu as we would do it if we were releasing it you know in 2024 instead of in 2008 and i think that that by and large will keep everything that you love and make the parts that you went well it was 2008 better
0: so and as more proof of the principle that if you just keep talking eventually you will remember what you were supposed to say now, it's my next game at the Pelgrane panel at the show, and that's First Edition, uh, which is the game of dramatic interaction and literary storytelling for one GM and one player. And uh, it's, it's called First Edition. Wags have said, what do you do when there's a second edition? But the reason is it's too simple to ever need a second edition. It might have a different cover might have a different name but there's nothing to change it's so incredibly simple and we're not calling it drama system one-to-one because that's the worst name in the world but basically this is the because most stories about people and their personal transformations there are a bunch of them that are about ensembles especially in television but the vast bulk of them center around a single protagonist so this simplifies even further the already very simple drama system rules and changes the token economy and then provides much more guidance for the GM to mold a, a story because like One Wonder 1, you need a lot more support. And so the one of the sort of type examples is an F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, one that sort of upends some of the assumptions of Gatsby and rearranges it a bit. There's another one that's a Shakespearean comedy. There's Ruth Tillman. Among the things that she did is a Jane Austen one, which of course is a, a perfect choice. Uh, Wade Rocket. Among his contributions is one in which you uh, do a screwball comedy from the 30s. But this is also something you can use to just do actual realistic stories about people without nerd elements. So he does one about the leader of a female-driven rock and roll band on the Sunset Strip in the heyday of that scene. And Sarah Saltail does, among her three really great uh, submissions, are one about a a vampire and uh, their human lover the lover is dying and doesn't want to become a vampire but the vampire wants to love this person wants to protect them forever which means convincing them and so this is a genre story it uses horror imagery but it's about an emotional development that is life-changing and also there's the ability to play with time and move forward in time for the characters in a way that you don't normally see even in even a drama system, which tends to be sort of very focused around unity of time. So there are ones that jump way ahead in time. And both people, uh, the, the player may be surprised by the changes in their character and circumstance as the decades go by in a story that sort of moves from uh, Haight-Ashbury in the late 60s to the near present day or even generation by generation in a story about robotic beings continuing human civilization after all the humans they were built to protect are gone. Um, So finally, Ken, every year I try out new restaurants in in Indianapolis, and usually I find expensive, passable, or mediocre restaurants. Is this a fair thing to say? More than fair, quite frankly. Um, I did find one that I would point people to that is a, Level above that. And you might be familiar with it because it's been there for a long time. It's just a little bit off, you know, it's, it's four blocks away instead of two. But there's a place called the Flatiron at the point that was pretty good. And uh, it follows that Indianapolis theory of higher end food with the intense bombarded flavoring of perhaps middle range or processed food. But uh, this was a good version of that. And my uh, shrimp with grits which also turned out to be a half-seared tuna, which everyone else at the table had noticed but me, mm-hmm. and I was happy to see them there, was uh, was pretty good. Was your meal there good, Ken?
1: Yeah, it was It was fine. I was engaging in my uh, purchasing of an indulgence theory of Gen Con, in which if I eat a salad early enough and send the picture to Sheila, I am forgiven in advance for everything else I will do at Gen Con. So I had a uh, delicious salad with some... Perfectly adequate popcorn shrimp. Those were fine, but the salad was actually pretty good. It had a, a dill, uh, ranch dressing on it. It was nice, heavy on the dill, light on the ranch. It's what we like. And it was mixed greens on a bed of ancient grains. And I was very excited by that, but it turned out to be basically just sort of bulgur and it was nice. It did everything I wanted it to do, but I would not say, Oh, everyone drop what you're doing. Run to Flatiron at the point and get the salad. That's not. I think a recommendation I could or should no, make.
0: But but I think Ken having a salad at Gen Con is, I think, enough of a headline. That's breaking news by itself. Yeah, to, to end our, our roundup episode. So we'll be back uh, next week, returning to mostly our usual format. And until then, let's just go, Ken, and crawl under some covers and recover yeah, from lovely idea. exciting 2023 Gen Con. Take a week-long nap. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Asphagown, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by Dream Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at
1: patreon.com backslash Canan Robin.
0: Bring coffee to our booth as would backers John Bisco, Chris McLaren, Adam Grotian, Lee Candolino, and Luke Steyer. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin present the gray alien point of
1: view with our latest design nope still not us on x he's at kenneth height and on mastodon he's robin d laws at dice.camp
0: see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff